Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 196 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we probably got a little over-enthused about our interest in the possibilities of virtual reality and augmented reality. In this episode, we'll take a much more practical turn. Tom and I were talking about a collaboration approach that we had tried that didn't work out quite as well as we had hoped. That got me thinking about failed and failing tech projects and how, how you need to deal with them. In today's terms, that probably means hashtag fail or pivoting. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be trying to answer an unfortunately increasingly common question, can this tech project be saved? In our second segment, we have another question from one of our listeners. Keep sending those questions in. We love them. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But First up, failing and or failed technology projects. Uh, it happens from time to time, of course. A project that you're working on fails for one reason or another. It's not just technology projects, but we are a technology podcast, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about projects, efforts, and initiatives that go wrong at some point in time and how or whether to recover from them. Uh, before we get started, though, Dennis, did you really actually just admit failure on a tech project that we were involved in? Yes, I, I actually did. And, and when I did it, uh, I was surprised by the stunned <laughs> silence on the phone that uh, uh, people always seem surprised when you acknowledge that something didn't quite didn't quite work. And so in this case, uh, with the Legal Technology Resource Center board, we tried one of these uh, collaboration efforts using Slack, which, Tom, both you and I really like and, and, and has tons of benefits. And we were kind of looking back on the past year to see how well it had gone and sort of describe it. And there's this, I had this initial impulse to try to spin to say, well, you know, it, there's some challenges, but we accomplished something. And I just said, you know, it was an utter fail. I mean, there's just like a limited number of messages, but let's see if we can maybe figure out what we learned from that and just call it a fail because that's what it was and see whether we can take a different approach, use a different tool or whatever we do. And, and that was one of the things that got me thinking about this is that, you know, where I work and, and, and being at MasterCard and being involved in a lot of innovation efforts people like to talk about failing fast. And, you know, sometimes uh, people actually do that and sometimes they don't. But there is a notion that it is, for me, that it is good. And I find myself more willing to say, hey, I started something and it's not going right. So let's figure out whether we need to keep doing it or we need to try something different or we just have to make a, a change to that. So that's what I want to talk about, Tom. And, and then also I, I think it's worth pointing out that um, – I do feel there's a difference between a, a failed project, I guess, a failing project, and I think for purposes of our podcast, just troubleshooting on something. So I think we want to focus on actual projects that aren't working so well. 
Right. I agree because the slack effort notwithstanding, I think that that's one of those instances where failing fast is a good thing. But I, I think that projects are a different item because once you've committed to a project, you know, once once you fail, then it, it's a failure. It's it's not something that you can say, let's adjust or let's try something new. Um, it's a failure. Although I'm going to argue um, as we head down the road of what makes and what causes failed projects, I'm going to probably serve as more of a devil's advocate on some of these things to say that I think that a lot of what you may think or you may say are causes or can be causes of fails are actually salvageable. They actually, you can still salvage the project given the right, the right people and the right attitudes. But I think that, that I agree, we want to talk kind of about when there is a technology initiative. And I think that for purposes of this this discussion, I'm probably going to be bringing a slightly more corporate uh, perspective to this because I've been involved in several technology initiatives with large corporations where they've tried to implement some type of technology tool that helps their information governance efforts. Um, but frankly, any of the projects I think we're going to talk about in the abstract uh, can apply to law firms of all sizes and technology projects of all sizes. Yeah, so I, I guess, Tom, what I, I think, I, so I sort of jokingly say it's hashtag fail is kind of the, the way people actually describe these projects once they're in them or how they instant message each other with the hashtag and fail on the messages. So one thing I, I think about, uh, for me, a failed project that I've noticed is that it does seem like when you have a failing project, everybody and I think even in their heart of hearts, the person in charge who usually is the one who's willing to stick with it knows that the projects aren't working. And so I think that if you can kind of, you know, pull that information out of people, you start to see that attitude, you start to see the little breakdowns and, and the, the lack of support. I, I think that it's actually easier to diagnose some of these things because there really is something close to a, a consensus on it, you know, in people's heart of hearts. I don't, I don't know, time of, am I maybe too simplifying it too much or and thinking that's always there or it's more of like a mixed thing going on? Well, I, I think it depends. I, I think that there are certainly lots of projects where everybody has an idea that something isn't working or that it might be failing. But my common theme that I'm going to have this whole time is is that if a project is being run well, if it's being managed appropriately, then those types of issues either get minimized or aren't a factor at all. Um, and they can be turned around so that you don't have a particular failure. Now, if you have a project that's not being managed well, if you have it where you don't have um, you know, the, the right project leader, the right project sponsors, that's sort of asking for trouble on the front end. And, and that can certainly lead to that. But I really believe that you know, with the right group, you can take a lot of what appear to be causes of project failures and and turn it around and make it successful or at least try to salvage part of it. So do we want to maybe talk about some of those causes and, and what we think are the things that have the potential to uh, to doom a technology project? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do want to touch on that. There are some other symptoms that I typically see, and, and one of them is, is pretty noticeable delays and sometimes inexplicable delays, cost overruns, budget cuts, just a sort of failure for something to actually launch, cutting away features, uh, people working around, you know, with other tools while, you know, instead of using the project and just that pure lack of adoption. So a number of things that you'll see out there. So I, I think there are a number of causes. And I, and I guess I think that, in time, what you're saying, I think good management does, um, and communication does uh, help on a lot of things. But sometimes you run into things that just aren't going to work no matter how well managed they are. And so some of the causes... The the one I'll start with is just, just a poor project definition in the in the first place, and so I see this a lot of times in law where people say we need to implement case management or document management without really figuring out what that means or what the project is, or you know figuring out exactly what the beginning, the end of that project is or what the phases should be. So it's just, you know, there's a concept out there. And so, and so I don't think there's great uh, project definition. And so I think it makes hard to manage those things because in a way you're not really understanding where it is that your, your end point is. My response to that really is that with poor definition, I think that that's something that you're right. There can be a failure with the right team, with the right leadership, I think that a course correction can be made. I think that you can come in and say, you know what, we didn't really scope this the way that we that we needed to scope this. Something's not working here, so we really need to redefine this project and do better. A lot of these things, I think, can be fixed, but it's hard. It's not easy. It's not something that's like, oh, that's an easy fix or a cheap fix, but I'm going to make the argument that that's a recoverable cause, that you can get back from that Again, given the right team, given the right people, some of the things that I think are on your list, Dennis, are less recoverable. That's not one of them. Okay. So sometimes you see something where people just made the wrong technology choice. So you're thinking, you know, you looked at a number of options. And I think this is sort of big in the legal area. I don't think that people understand all the options or know as many there are as many options as there could be in the technology that you could choose and you choose something that's just the wrong thing you know it's better suited for a larger firm maybe you you really swing and miss at the at, at the ball as it's coming in and, and you pick something that's uh depending on something else that you don't you don't have or that you uh it requires you to upgrade versions or upgrade hardware or, or do other things so sometimes there's a just a wrong technology choice and that will lead to a downward spiral and then I would say a variation on the poor project definition is that uh, you have you sort of have a change in either the requirements that you have, the goals that you have, or maybe an under, maybe just have a better understanding of those requirements, and and that to me will go hand in hand with the wrong technology choice. So once you figure out what it is that you want to do as you get into a project and have a better understanding, that's when you may recognize that you've kind of picked the wrong technology to use. Yeah, I think the wrong technology gets you much closer to 
a fail that's that's hard to recover from. Um, there are a lot of projects where you get in and you, just, and you figure out, you know, this is just isn't what we wanted. We um, worked with a company that needed to buy a connector that helped them connect Outlook to SharePoint. And they went through three tools and it took them the better part of a year before they really finally decided on what they wanted. They just weren't satisfied with each one of those tools. Now, the good news is they didn't implement all of it fully. And so they were able to recover from all of that and were back on track with everything. But I think that, you know, if you get something in and it's the wrong choice, I think that that's much harder to recover from. I'll again make the argument that if requirements change, it will make for a longer project. It will make for a more painful project. Um, but I think it's still possible to recover a project by helping to refine or modify the requirements. I mean, I think that where I see projects that start to fail, where you just don't really have a lot of control over it, is on issues like uh, like budget, where we only have so much money to spend on this. Um, it's it's entirely possible to course correct on a project until you run out of budget, and then everything's gone. And so that's, that's to me, what I see as sort of the ultimate failure. You still haven't hit on what I think is the number one cause of why projects fail, but I'm going to let you keep talking about them and see if you can hit on what I think is the number one cause. Okay, so I want to emphasize the point that, that you've been making, Tom, that I think that a lot of these things that somebody might think are fails are recoverable. And the, and so there's a notion that we'll talk about of, of pivoting, which is the popular term these days, where you take the learning from what's gone wrong and and, and actually you, you know do the recovery. There's one I think that's kind of interesting that's a fail that uh, can be a potential winner, which is the technology itself changes over the course of the project. So as you're making, and, and the, the classic example for me is uh, you start a project, you think it's either going to be a software installation or a customization. And then you realize that there's a cloud tool that does everything that you need that you could get started up right away and is a fraction of the cost and it is a better solution. So that original custom project, if you're able to walk away from it, um, is the fail, but the result of implementing a cloud tool could be a big win and, and one of the better recoveries that you can do. I think that's true, but I think it can also work in the opposite direction. Um, uh, and, and I'm going to use I'm going to use Microsoft as another example to this, where we were involved in a project um, where, again, they were trying to implement some feature of SharePoint, um, and it was something that they really that was a must-have requirement of the tool that they wanted to implement, and all of a sudden, Microsoft made a change to the product where it was no longer possible to do what they wanted to do. And no word from Microsoft on whether or not they were going to reinstate it or bring it back in a different format in the future. But I would argue that's another kind of technology change that you're all in on something and then suddenly the, the functionality that you wanted has been yanked. And frankly, I think that when you get a cloud tool, the possibility for yanking it, it becomes greater because it's easier to iterate on cloud tools than it is on, uh, on, on other applications. So um, I think that definitely has some good potential, but still haven't hit on what I think is the number one answer. So I'll keep, let you keep trying. Okay, so I, I'm going to give you the rest of my list, and then I am going to identify what I believe is your correct answer. Okay. So I think there can be other scope and project changes and scope creep and drift. Those that can definitely lead to fail. Uh, cost issues, either the cost goes up or the budget gets cut. 
can really cause a cause a problem. And then I think you do occasionally get things where it, things just don't work and you can never get them to work. And you just sort of get to the 98% completed project and you can't you can't get the last 2% and then the project fails. But the one I think where where I think you actually get the fails is where people change. And so uh, either the person in charge of it leaves or, you know, key people leave or a new person comes in who's not committed to the project or has their own approach. And I think that people change is what can actually bring uh, uh, projects to a dead stop. So that's my best guess, Tom. So I will agree with you that if you get the wrong person on a people change, that can be a problem. If they don't have the same mindset, if they don't agree um, with the direction, then you know they can torpedo the project the minute that they walk in. So the goal, the the hope is, is that you you find somebody that's of the same mindset and and that you're also communicating well to them when they come in. I'm going to make the argument that I think that the single, the number one cause for projects to fail ultimately is a lack of buy-in or consensus among all the people who need to be a part of the project, who are involved in the implementation and ultimately rollout and adoption of the project. And I don't mean that users don't adopt it. I mean that, for example, an organization we worked with, Legal decided they wanted to have this big technology piece and it was going to help them with a lot of risk issues. And they brought in a consultant to work on it. And they went to IT and IT immediately said, no, we're, we're not going to do that. I mean, they didn't even want to talk about it. They said, absolutely no, we're not going to do it. And that was pretty much <laughs> a dead end. It, it never recovered from that. And so I think that the same thing in lots of law firms is a bunch of lawyers can't make decisions on a technology project without having IT involved. Likewise, IT can't get involved in the same project without having lawyers involved. And so there really needs to be an idea of who's affected. Should these people be on the project team? Should they be consulted? Should they be part of the requirements gathering that is part of all of this? Um, No matter what, there needs to be that communication up front. We're going to do this. We want your input. We want your participation. We want you to invest in this and be a part of this whole process because if that doesn't happen, I will say from experience, there are guaranteed to be some level of negative reactions down the road. You know, even if the people pushing back are actually in favor of the change, I've seen people who push back because they weren't included, because their voice wasn't heard, because they felt like their opinion didn't matter. So that's that's what I'm going to argue has the potential to torpedo most, just because I've seen it happen so many times. Yeah, and that's, I, I think there are probably many, many examples of the the one obstinate partner who's killed new technology oh, yeah. projects at yep. a firm, especially somebody who's a rainmaker who controls a, a lot of clients. I think another side of that is losing the buy-in from the people at the the top, um, yep. and sometimes this can be, this can happen really quickly. I, you know, I was aware of a situation where new projects rolled out is part of the big announcement in front of everyone. The head of the firm makes not just one but two jokes, kind of belittling the project, and <laughs> it went nowhere. I mean, it, and it would, should be the surprise of no one that it it went nowhere. So those are some of the reasons. Then the next step, time I think, is actually recognizing the problem. You know, and so we started out with me saying that I said, "Hey, our Slack thing is a fail," and sort of feeling. I, there was stunned silence on the phone, but I, so I think it's sort of rare that people actually do say, "Hey, there's there's a problem. We need to do something." 
something about it that's sort of a little bit out of the ordinary. And I think it comes back to this sort of key question that needs to be decided at the beginning of a project and often isn't, and which is who has the responsibility for declaring a project is actually done and who has the responsibility for, for pulling the plug on the project. And the better definition you have of that and the engagement of that person, the more likely you are, I think, to be able to say, hey, we need to do something about this, get that done, and, and start us on, on the route to recovery. So I, I don't know, Tom, has that been your experience as well? Oh, absolutely. I think that a project, a successful project, benefits from a couple of different things in terms of recognizing the problem and taking responsibility for dealing with a potential failure. You know, Hopefully, you've got a good project manager. The project managers in place, I think they are sort of that first line to be able to say, hey, I think something's going wrong. You want your project team to realize it as well, but I think the project manager is in a best position because they're following everything. They know where all the bodies are buried. They know every, what, what's going on. And hopefully you want them to bring that to the attention of the right people at a higher level to start getting things going. But you know, with the right process, with the right project process, the whole team should be learning about this through the project manager sooner than later. You're having regular calls or regular meetings to discuss it. You have reports on it that let people know with complete transparency, not only about the current status of the project, but also what are the risks? What are the problems that we might be facing right now that, you know, things are slowing down or we're coming up against a budget requirement or, um, you know, we're not getting the, the agreement or the buy-in that we really need to get. Having those issues addressed on a regular basis really helped you to, one, identify it early, but then, and which helps you either, one, fix it, or two, fail fast, like you talk about. And now I think that no project is successful without a strong project sponsor. Um, and that project sponsor, uh, I don't want to say the higher the better, but I want to say that someone who has the power to command some degree of attention and support from the groups that are putting all of this together. And I think that person has a dual responsibility. I think that they have the privilege of declaring victory and they have the responsibility of declaring defeat um, in consultation with the, that project team. But uh, without a strong sponsor who can and kind of lead it through, navigate through the the upper echelons of the firm or the company's power structure, um, but who also can make the tough decisions, and then a strong project manager um, to talk about the day-to-day -day stuff. I mean, I think those are two important pieces to making sure that if, even if something happens to go south, it doesn't have to be a fatal event. I see three hurdles. Before. I, I think we'll, Tom will talk about like what do you do to save a project, but I think there's sort of three big hurdles that I often see. So one is the sunk cost issues. As humans, it seems like we're programmed to say, hey, wait, we already spent a million dollars on this project that's going nowhere. Let's throw like another $2 million at it and it might not work, but we don't want to throw away that first million dollars. So it's like, how can you step back and sort of look at things and say what's been spent is spent that just becomes a part of the 
the cost to what becomes a successful project. And if we have to go in a different direction, let's not think about that as money down the drain. That's just part of, of the project. So that sunk cost thing, and there's been a million words written about it. And psychologically, it's really difficult um, any organization. That's a hurdle. The other thing is because of the people involved, you want to come up with approaches that allow people to save face or not lose face because of, of what happened before. And then can you put together, whether it's a new group or the same group, a way to do a fairly objective and hard-headed analysis and, and make hard decisions. And I think each of those can be a hurdle, and they're probably all three present in almost every project that is failing. So, Tom, we have this failing project, and how how do we determine if it can be saved, or better yet, how it can be saved? Because I, I think, as you're saying, in many cases, these these are recoverable failures. I think that the recognizing if it can be saved really depends on smart people being able to look and say, what's the reason for this failure? You know, what's the root cause of it? Um, being able to recognize all the things that you just discussed can be potential true failures of a project. Um, but some of those things, if you recognize them in time, if you develop a plan, if you do a good cost-benefit analysis uh, you know, so that you, you avoid having to sink more costs in if you don't want to, you say, well, we're going to cut our losses right now and get out of it, or um, it makes more sense to put a little bit more money in and make this succeed because over the long run, um, it'll be a lot more successful. I think that really identifying that cause and then making, like you say, uh, an objective determination of can we really recover from this? Does what we need to do to salvage this project justify the cost, the time, the effort, perhaps the stress and the anxiety of the team involved? If the answer to that is yes, it does justify it, then you move forward with it. But that's got to be a determination of not only the project sponsor, but the project manager and the team as well. It's got to be a group decision. Well, and I, th I think the other thing is there's, uh, you know, there are books, there are podcasts, there's a bunch of articles these days. And I, you know, this term pivot um, is probably becoming as ubiquitous as uh, disruption in its way. But pivot, I think, is really a useful term. So the, the notion is pivot in a startup companies, you start out with one project or one product you think is going to work. When it goes out to the customers, they don't like it. And your, your business ends up turning to something that does work. So in a way, you have a fail, but it's a, it's a, it's a fail that you learn from from and turn into a positive direction. And so I think the notion of pivoting a failed project is really important psychologically and also creatively because you say, okay, so we can take this project and we can take the end point that we're trying to get to and say, how can we pivot either to that endpoint that we wanted or to something better that we found is, is a better result and not look at it so much as, as a failure, as a loss, but as a learning process. And that uh, if you come out at the end better than you had hoped, then the, the fail is a temporary thing and it's all good. And so I think if you take that approach, you look at the lessons that you've learned, and then also look at some of the things like, was it scaled too big? 
Can you phase it? Can you make it smaller? And, and again, the pivot notions, a lot of times companies start out with this very elaborate product and what they find the customers want is something quite simple. And and so if you looked at that, again, that notion of pivot in startups, I think can be really helpful. And then, you know, you're going to have to figure out what's the best way to go forward. Are you going to pull off the Band-Aid? Are you going to do it more gradual? Do you need to change people? to change the course, a lot of issues out there. Yeah, I guess I, I'm going to end this with a whimper rather than a bang. I agree with everything that you say there. I guess my only comment would be that to me, the term pivot sounds a little bit like uh, like spin. It sounds like uh, we're trying to avoid uh, the negativity associated with the failure, and so we call it a pivot instead. Um, I know that there are many benefits to the pivot, um, so I'm not going to argue that, but I really think that um, the important things to understand when you've got a, a project that's failing is whatever it is that you call it, recognize the issues, figure out whether those issues are surmountable issues. And if they are, then work like heck to make it work. Because, um, you know, if you've decided to engage in this project, chances are it'll be a successful project if you just, you know, do what you need to do to fix the issues that might be there. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. We have another audience question for this segment. Uh, reminder that we've opened up a number for calling us with your questions, and we really want to get your, your questions. Tom will give you some more details about that number at the end of the podcast. I've had a few people tell me that they'd actually rather hear what Tom and I want to talk about and that they are concerned that maybe their questions aren't interesting enough. Au contraire, we think that our audience is great, and your question will be of interest to the whole audience, so fire away. This episode's question, interestingly, Tom, is from a listener named Tom and deals with collaboration tools. So here we go. Go figure. I was talking to someone about uh, collaboration tools they used, and they mentioned the time zone calculator for planning conference calls. I get that the calculator might be helpful, but tell me where the other people come in. If you aren't actually working with another person using the tool, then is it really a collaboration tool? Tom, what do you think about that? All right, so let's just cut to the chase here and say that the Tom that we're talking about is this Tom that's talking right now and that the person I was talking to is on the other side of the microphone and we're talking about the next edition of our collaboration book. And, and one of the tools uh, that Dennis wants to mention in the book or was thinking about mentioning were the idea of time zone calculators. I think that time zone calculators are great tools. They allow you to help schedule 
schedule calls with other people around the world by understanding what time it is, where everybody else is, because it's hard to keep track of multiple time zones for multiple countries all over the world. What I don't agree with is that it's a collaboration tool. I think it's a great productivity tool. I think it's something that you can use yourself. But for me, the definition of a collaboration tool is something that two people use together to accomplish an end goal. And I don't see the other person using this tool to help you schedule that meeting. And that was why I question that it's a collaboration tool. So now I'll let you go ahead. I Clearly, this segment was so you could actually talk about the time zone calculator tool. So now you get to do that. So interestingly, I started my day early this morning uh, with a phone call with people in Kenya. And this evening, before we record the podcast, I was on the phone with people in Singapore. So I actually find the time zone calculator really helpful to me. And it can be really tricky to figure out times that are convenient for a lot of people. And if you can't get that done, then uh, then it, it is hard to collaborate when you need to do calls. So I think if I, I actually may let you win this argument, Tom, because I, I think that you're right. If When we think of a collaboration tool as something that you're doing the work in, the actual collaboration tool is going to be the telephone. Uh, where the time zone calculators come in. And sort of once you kind of get a feel for what the time zones are in rough terms, then you don't need the precise calculator unless you have a, a lot of people on a call. So I may grant you that uh, these don't need to go into the chapter of the book that you are writing, but uh, I do think it's in, uh, one of these great useful tools that is simple and and helpful to people and scheduling can be really difficult and the fact that you put the extra work in to finding a convenient time for everyone is something that everybody appreciates so you're right tom it's a great tool these are great tools i really like them especially if you work uh, internationally at all but it is a good way to for us to kind of plug the upcoming book and to think sort of more, more philosophical what a collaboration tool might be i am totally agree that that's a great tool but i am also glad we got that out of the way and now it's time for our parting shots that one tip website or observation you can use the second this podcast ends tom take it away Okay, I think we both have podcast tips this week. Um, the podcast tip I want to mention is the Reply All podcast. It's a technology podcast. I may have mentioned that in the past. They just finished a series of two podcasts called Long Distance, and it operates on the premise, what if you get a call from a scam company clearly wanting to scam you, um, in this case, saying that your iCloud account had been compromised. And what if you called them and tried to track them down and find out who they were? And the reporters who are part of the Reply All podcast actually did that. They actually called. They had many conversations with the scammers. They went and visited the scammers. It's fascinating to listen to. Um, it makes me want to actually talk to the people who call and try to scam me, too. Uh, it's called Reply All Podcast, and it's, the podcast episodes are Long Distance, Part 1 and 2. You know, Tom, this is kind of a really interesting parting shot from you because I just made a, a parting shot to the Reply All podcast because I just unsubscribed from it in the last couple of weeks. So I, I missed those Get two. out of town. Why did you unsubscribe to I it? I don't know. It's just like the topics just weren't working for me. Uh. So 
my parting shot is, uh, as many people know, that I'm a big David Allen getting things done fan. And so there is a getting things done podcast that I think is quite worthwhile. But the newest one, episode number 32, uh, with Meg Edwards and Kelly Forrester, is called The Better You Get. And the idea is that it's some tips for people who are fairly advanced. I mean, you don't have to be that advanced, but a, a sort of long-time advanced users of getting things done. And so the focus was on the notion of projects, which can be difficult. So, I mean, a project in the getting things done world is is something that has multiple action steps. And so they came with a four-step approach of of to help you surface things that are more projects and the idea is to get this stuff out of your head so you you can work with it and so i just found it really useful so it's things like problems like processes and procedures about competencies that you need to build those sorts of things and and once you kind of look at what you're doing in those terms i think it it helps you identify that you do have some more projects out there and to capture that stuff and to turn them into to things that you can work on the other thing they talked about is is a part of getting things done called the someday maybe list it's going to be esoteric if you're not uh, a getting things done user but they had this tip to say that someday maybe sort of feels like yeah maybe never list and is not helpful and so they they talked about creating lists of things that they called either incubate or on hold or someday but not now and and these were just really useful tips to me and and things that i put into place right away very cool. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site, where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com um, or visit us on LinkedIn. You can send us a message on LinkedIn or, as Dennis mentioned before, we really love to get voicemail questions from you. Our voicemail number is area code 720-441-6820. That's area code 720-441-6820. Give us a call. Leave us a message. We'll answer your question on our podcast. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about the podcast and give us a call with your tech question. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.